Well, three Sundays ago, we began looking at Romans chapter 8. My original plan is that we were only going to go through verse 17. The more I pondered this plan, the more I realized it was not a very good plan because there's no real way to just stop in the middle of this great chapter. And so I thought, well, we need to go on. We need to go all the way to the end. And so that's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to look at verses 18 to 30. Next week, we'll come back, finish up, and look at verses 31 to 39. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 18 and going through verse 30. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. Let us now hear God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us or bestowed upon us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. When we started our studies in this marvelous chapter, one of the things that I stated was that Paul wrote what we have here in this chapter to give us assurance. Because the truth is, Christian assurance is easily shaken. And the reason is because none of us have yet to arrive. None of us have reached our final God-purposed destination. Think, what is that destination? Well, it's seeing and sharing in the glory of Christ Himself. No, each of us are still on the way, journeying through the present and on into the future, to the day when God will fully and finally make us and all things right and new. And the fact that we haven't reached this future means our present experience will often be hard and difficult. For in the present, 
Sin still entangles us. Suffering still touches us. Satan still tempts us and death still comes for us. For us who are the children of God. Yes, we've been forgiven our sins. And yes, we've been freed from the fear of death. But the reality is in the present, we still sin and we still die. And we do because we're still weak. And in our weakness, we easily doubt. We doubt God's love. We doubt God's at work for our good. We doubt God is for us and with us in our present pain and perplexity. In the now time, our Christian assurance is easily shaken. And knowing this, Paul penned this great chapter to aid us in our struggle for assurance. And central to everything he says here is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. As we've seen in verses 1 to 17, it's the Spirit who's made us alive in Christ. And it's the Spirit who leads us in the way of Christ. And now, as we'll see in verses 18 to 30, it's the Spirit who helps us in our present weakness. Now, in this passage, Paul focuses on our present experience and our future expectation in Christ. And behind everything he says here is the image of the Exodus. For in Christ, we've presently experienced the true Exodus. We've been rescued, not from slavery to Egypt, but from our slavery to sin. In Christ, we've been freed, not from the tyranny of Pharaoh, but from the tyranny of death. Christ has brought us out from the Egypt of our sin and death. Yet in coming out, we've yet to come in to the promised land. We've yet to receive our inheritance of full restoration. We've come out, but we've not yet come in which means we're currently traveling where? In the wilderness. In the wilderness of a still broken world with still broken lives. But thankfully, we've not been left to ourselves on this journey. No, the same God who led Israel long ago by a cloud and by fire now leads us by His very own Spirit who dwells within us. And it's the Spirit who helps us on our journey. He helps us to look to Christ. He helps us to long for Christ. He helps us to be assured that we'll one day see and share in the full glory of Christ. It's the Spirit who helps us to say with the Apostle Paul, as he does in verse 18, that when I consider the sufferings of this present time, and there are sufferings, when I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. It's the Spirit who helps us to see that our future hope far outweighs our present hardship. Now, I'll admit that what Paul says in these verses is dense, but I think we can make it a little simpler if we focus on something in particular, and that is the three groanings Paul mentions in this passage. The groaning of creation, verse 22, the groaning of the church, verse 23, and the groaning of the Spirit, verse 26. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at these three groanings, and then I'm going to conclude by giving us some words of application concerning how the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So first then, the groaning of creation. 
Paul says in verse 22 that God's good creation currently groans. It's presently in pain. And the reason is because creation is in bondage. For the good creator subjected his good creation to futility, decay, and death. Now you should be thinking, why? Why would the good creator do this? Well, because the ones God created and called to care for creation rebelled. You see, behind what Paul writes in verses 19 to 22 is the story of Genesis 1 to 3. The story of how God called Adam and Eve to wisely steward His creation in love and faithfulness. Yet as we know from the story, that in preferring their sin, Adam and Eve, our representative, re- representatives, rejected God's given stewardship. The stewardship that He had given to them. And it was upon their ceasing to be stewards that creation began to suffer. It was subjected to futility and corruption. Because you see, from the beginning, God built into His creation an abiding principle. Here's the principle. As humanity goes, so goes creation. If humanity remained faithful to God, creation would flourish. But if humanity rejected God, creation would flounder. And sadly... That's what's happened. When humanity sinned, rebelled against God, rejected the stewardship that He had given to them, creation was enslaved to disorder and decay, and we know it. We live it. But notice, rather than seeing only the horror in this, Paul saw hope. And it was a hope rooted in God's sovereign, the Creator's sovereign purpose. And in light of God's sovereign purpose, Paul could declare that renewed beauty and not perpetual bondage would actually get the final word over this creation. That's why he can say that when God subjected creation, he did so in hope. Look how he puts this in verses 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, that is God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When God subjected creation as a result of humanity's sin, He did so with His ultimate purpose and ultimate future in mind, a future where He in grace would free and restore His creation. And how would He do this? Well, by restoring the glory humanity lost at the fall. The glory of our once again being the wise and faithful stewards of creation. Think again of the principle. As humanity goes, so goes creation. Humanity failed, so creation was subjected to futility. But when humanity is restored, then creation will be set free free to flourish, free to become the creation God always intended. The ultimate good of creation is bound up with our ultimate restoration. And that's why at this very moment, whether we realize it or not, 
At this very moment, the creation, verse 19, waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. In the present, this broken creation is on tiptoe with expectation. It's waiting and longing for us to become the humans God always intended us to be. It's waiting for us to one day share fully in the glory of Christ, who himself is the true human. In this way, creation is waiting for the return of her Lord. Because only when Jesus returns will we become the humans that God desired and that creation needs. And as creation waits with eager expectation, it also groans. It groans in pain, but it's not a pointless pain. No, it's a productive pain. For creation groans in the pain of childbirth. Now, obviously, I've never experienced the groans of childbirth personally. Some of you have. I have not. But I have witnessed it on four separate occasions. I've witnessed the groans of childbirth, and what I witnessed was truly painful. But at no point was it a pointless pain. No, the pains of childbirth that I witnessed were pains of joy and expectation. It was a productive pain, a pain that was actually worth it because it looked forward to a new birth to the birth of a new creation. And what Paul's saying is that this creation groans in hope of its own transformation. And tied to its transformation is our transformation. Only when we're fully redeemed to look and live like Jesus will this creation be set free to flourish in a way that we can scarcely imagine now. At Christ's return, we who trust in Him now will share in His glory. And our glory will be for the good of creation. Because God's purpose in Christ has never been to obliterate this creation. We hear that often. But God's purpose is not to obliterate this creation. No, His purpose is to make this creation right and new and beautiful. And because this is God's purpose for His wider creation... We, who belong to Christ now, can be assured that we one day will be fully restored. You see how that works? If God is committed to the restoration of this creation, it assures us that we too will be restored because there is no restoration of creation without our first being restored fully to look like Christ and to share in His glory. One day we'll be the image bearers God always had in mind. We're on the way now. And one day we will arrive. One day our true selves in Christ will be gloriously revealed. And when we are, creation will rejoice. It'll burst into song. The trees will clap their hands. The valleys will sing. On that day, the present groaning of creation will give way to joy at our Christ-given glory. So there's the groaning of creation. It groans now in hope of our future revelation. And that brings us then secondly to the groaning of us, the church, those who belong to Jesus in the present. Verse 23, and not only the creation, 
but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Within the groaning of creation, we Christians groan as well. We're not immune to the groaning. We don't stand on the sideline while the creation groans. No, we're in the middle of it. We're groaning as well. We too groan because we too are waiting. And what we're waiting for is our adoption. Now Paul's already said back in verse 15 that we have, if we belong to Christ, we've already received the spirit of adoption as sons. We are already children of God. And yet there's a form of our adoption that we're still waiting on. There's a present and future component to our adoption in Christ. And the link, or better, the guarantee that we who are presently adopted in Christ will one day enter the full reality of our adoption is the Holy Spirit. Paul says He's the first fruits, the down payment, the guarantee of our future to come. You see, in having the Spirit, we've actually been given an advanced taste of future redemption. That taste comes in the form of full forgiveness now in Christ, as well as the promise that death can't and won't get the final word over us who belong to Jesus. And it's because we have the Spirit, it's actually the work of the Spirit within us, that we now groan. We groan for what the Spirit will bring us fully in the future. And what He'll bring us in the future is the full reality of our adoption, which Paul describes as what? The redemption of our bodies. Because currently our bodies are weak. They're still prone to sin. That's why Paul told us back in verse 13 that the sinful deeds of the body in the present need to be put to death. Our bodies don't yet share in the resurrection glory of Christ. They're still mortal. But there's a day coming when the mortality of our bodies will be swallowed up by the immortality of the risen Christ. For at Christ's return, our bodies, think about this, these bodies will be transformed to be like Christ's own resurrected body. For on that day, the same Spirit who raised Jesus and who now dwells within you will raise up your bodies to share in the glorious resurrected body of Jesus Christ. You will see Him and you will be like Him. And what this means is that God's purpose, like it is for creation, is the same for us. Restoration. God's purpose for our bodies is that they would be glorious and splendid and fashioned after Christ's own resurrected body, and therefore no longer subject, one day, no longer subject to weakness, humiliation, sickness, sin, or death. In the present, we are mere shadows of our future selves. We are mere shadows of what we will be at Christ's return. But one day, our bodies, the whole of our lives, because without a body, we're not truly fully human. You understand that, right? 
We are both soul and body. And one day these bodies that are decaying will be raised. And when they are, they will pulsate with the very life of Christ. And when they do, they'll become perfect vehicles for loving God, loving one another, and for loving the wider creation properly and gratefully. My friends, our Christian hope isn't simply to go to heaven when we die, although that is true and that is good news. No, our ultimate hope is resurrection. And in the now time, we're to groan and wait and long for this because it's in this hope Notice how Paul puts it in verse 24. It's in this hope, the hope of the resurrection, that we were saved. You see how he puts future, present, and past all together in one sentence? It's in this hope that we were saved. For our salvation in Christ is both now and not yet. We are saved, but we've yet to enter into full salvation because these bodies of ours have yet to be fully redeemed. We know salvation now, but we don't yet see the full reality of our salvation. And because we don't, we're called to wait for it eagerly and in hope. That's why Paul puts it the way he does in verses 24 and 25. For in hope, in this hope, the hope of resurrection, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen isn't hope. You don't hope for what you already have. We don't yet have resurrected bodies, so we hope for it. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, and we don't yet see the redemption of our bodies, we wait for it with patience. Not passive patience, active patience, eager longing. My friends, Christianity is a life of hope, of looking and straining forward to the future, to the future of seeing Christ so as to share fully in His resurrection glory. And as we look forward, we groan. We groan in longing. We groan in hope. And the reality is every groaning, every groaning in our present life, is actually an echo of our deepest groaning for resurrection. For us and this world to be made right, for sin to be no more, for death to die. Our groanings, whether we realize it or not, because we so often want to satisfy them with trinkets, TV, things at a fingertip. The true longings that we have can't be satisfied by anything in this present life. That's why we must set our groanings and our longings and our hope upon Christ who alone can satisfy. At this very moment, creation is groaning for your resurrection. Do you groan for it as well? Do you take seriously the words we often confess that we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come? Well, there's the third groaning. The most mysterious, and it's the groaning of the Spirit Himself. You know, it's natural to wonder, where's God in the midst of all this groaning? Well, He's not standing to the side. He's not a long way off. No, He's present. He's actually in the middle of it. For God, too, God the Holy Spirit is presently groaning 
Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. Within the groaning of creation and with the groaning of God's people, God is groaning as well. When we groan because of our sufferings and difficulties, when we groan for all things to be made right and new, we never groan alone. For in our weak and weary hearts, the sovereign spirit is groaning as well. What's he groaning about? He's groaning about you, about your need about your weakness, about your spiritual inability. He's groaning about the fact that you struggle to be faithful. And his groaning isn't a groaning of complaint. No, it's a groaning of comfort and love. For the Spirit groans in us and for us because he knows better than we do how weak we truly are. And this weakness of ours comes out in the reality that in the midst of so much pain and perplexity, We don't even know what to pray for. We're not even sure how to pray. When things become really intense, when loss hits us in the face, we find that we have a loss for words even when it comes to prayer. We don't even know what to pray for. And yet, the Spirit, rather than mocking or scolding us for our inability in prayer, He actually helps us in prayer by interceding within us with His own groans. Grasp what Paul is saying. The Spirit of God, the Sovereign Spirit, groans and He does so within you. He groans with inexpressible groanings that we can't even understand or articulate. But here's the marvel. Even though we believe the Spirit groans within us, even though we don't have the words to articulate it and we don't have the words that even make sense of what He exactly is groaning, the Father understands it perfectly. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts, what a name for our Heavenly Father. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As one commentator put it, the Father is in continual communion with the Spirit who dwells within the hearts of His people. And the Father understands what the Spirit is saying, even though we don't. God hears and answers the prayer, which we only know as painful groanings, the tossings and turnings of an unquiet soul standing before its Maker with the pains and puzzles of the world heavy upon its heart. There will be times when the pain of the present will be so intense that we won't know what or even how to pray. But in those times, the Spirit knows. He knows how and what to pray. And we can rest assured that His prayers, His groanings on our behalf will always be answered. For the Spirit always prays in accordance with God's will and purpose. And what is God's will and purpose? Well, it's everything Paul has been saying, that we would be conformed fully to the image of Jesus. Verse 29, the Spirit's great desire for you is that you would look like Jesus. 
That's what he's groaning about. That's what he's interceding on your behalf about. Asking the Father that the Father would cause all things. Now, what does all things include? Come on, we're smart people. All things. Everything in all of history and in the present and in the future that God the Father would use all things at His disposal to make you like Jesus. Because here's the reality. God has no greater purpose for your life than to make you like His Son. We may have a list of purposes for our life. God has one purpose, and that is to make you like Jesus. And He is using everything in His sovereign power, everything, to make you like His Son. Because this is His sovereign purpose, we can be assured that it will be accomplished. And to help us be assured in this, the Spirit groans within us and intercedes for us. Three groanings. Groaning of creation, the groaning of the church, and the groaning of the Spirit within our hearts. Let me conclude quickly with three points of application of how the Spirit helps us in light of what we've seen in this passage. First, the Holy Spirit helps us to be honest about our weakness, which is easier said than done. He helps us to be honest about our weakness because Christianity isn't for the strong. It isn't for people who think they have it all together. No, Christianity is for the broken and needy. It's for people who know they can't live the Christian life apart from the power and help of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says elsewhere, when I am weak, then I am strong. Nowhere does the Bible say God helps those who helps themselves. No, it says God helps those who know they're weak and the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The help and strength of the sovereign spirit is available to all who confess their weakness and need. Have you done that? Are you doing that day by day? So the spirit helps us to be honest about our weakness because when we know we're weak, we are driven to Christ. Second, the Holy Spirit helps us to practice hope. To hope for the day when all things, all things will be made right and new. Because you see, we're not called to live our best life now. We're not. No, our best life, our true life is coming and we're called to wait for it eagerly and patiently even as we presently groan. And the Spirit works in us in such a way that He turns us to Christ who first suffered and then entered into glory. And if God's purpose is to make you like Christ, the pattern's already been set. Hardship in the present, glory to come. We get taste of glory on the way, but full glory still awaits us. We're not called to live our best life now. But it's only because of Jesus that we can have hope, which means we're not simply called to cope, to simply grit our teeth and bear it, and we're certainly not called to force a smile in the face of so much terror and travesty in the world. No, we're called to look and long for the day when all wrongs will be righted and all evil will be undone. For only then will all be well. My friends, we are weak when it comes to hope. Therefore, let me encourage you to ask the Spirit to help you grow in hope. 
to increase your taste and longing for God's future to come. Because only as our view of God's future gets bigger and bigger, we'll be able to say with Paul that when I consider the present sufferings, I realize they're not even worth comparing to the great glory that is coming and that is ours in Christ. Third, last one, the Holy Spirit helps us to know that we'll never be forgotten or abandoned. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we fail. Yes, we will die. But none of these things has the final word over the one who belongs to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, then you've been loved with a love that spans from eternity to eternity. And this is brought out in the amazing words Paul strings together in verses 29 to 30, that in Christ-shaped love, God has foreknown you. As Willie Nelson would put it, you were always on his mind. Always. God has foreknown, foreloved you from all of eternity. And in that love, He's predestined you to belong to Jesus. In love, God called you in time to trust in Jesus so that you might be justified in Jesus, clothed in His own righteousness. And in love, God will one day glorify you in Christ. And for Paul, this future glorification is so certain. Notice he speaks of it as already being done, glorified. Like what hasn't happened yet? Paul says, in Christ and by the work of the Spirit, it's as good as done, glorified. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified in Christ. And it's all because of God's sovereign love. His love shown to us in Christ and poured into our hearts by the Spirit. And as Paul meditated, wrote out, thought about this sovereign love and encourages us to do the same, he's leading us to the point at the end that we might declare confidently and with assurance that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our assurance in the present and concerning the future is rooted in God's Christ-shaped and Spirit-given love. Have you received that love? Are you resting in that love? His love that's eternally determined to conform you to the glorious image of Christ. Even now in love, our God is using all things, the good, the bad, the hard, and the ugly, to accomplish His one purpose for your life. Therefore, trust Him. Love Him. For He is at work for your good, your ultimate good in Christ. He is worthy of our trust, and Christ is worthy of all our longing. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for these deep and dense words. So much more could be said. What has been said, may it continue to pierce our hearts through the power of Your Spirit. May our hope be increased, even as we presently suffer and wait and long and groan. Amen.